is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 174, covering the week of June 17th through June 21st, 2019. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute, like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. If you don't want to fi- search for all those things yourself, you can find them on our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see all our social media buttons, along with our Amazon Smile button. You can support the Institute by shopping at Amazon. If you just click that button, make us your preferred nonprofit organization. You throw a few pennies our way every time you shop and buy something at Amazon.com. And who doesn't buy something at Amazon.com? So it's a great way to support the Institute. While you're there, you can also give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook, and you'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email, which includes a link to this podcast on Saturday or Sunday. Also, download our free mobile application. Just do a search for uh, on your mobile device, whether it's uh, Google Play or uh, iTunes, wherever you purchase uh, your your uh, your applications. This is free of charge, so you can do that. Just search for Abbeville Institute, download it to your mobile device. You've got the Abbeville Institute on the go. You've got our podcasts, our lectures, mobile access to the website. You can also get it for your desktop. Um, so uh, just go out there and look for that as well. So you've got our mobile app. I think we have a we actually have a button, a tab on the website that'll take you right out to that. Um, so find that. And, of course, we do exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you would like to help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition, you can do so by going to abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see a tab that says support. Click on that. It'll drop it down a menu. It says uh, donor levels. You can donate monthly, annually, or a one-time gift. All of your contributions are greatly appreciated. And they do help keep the podcast going, they help keep the website going, they help keep our conferences going, they help other projects that we're working on. Of course, we have a new book coming out with the Abbeville Institute Press, a couple of those actually. Uh, so a lot of things that we're doing, we have some videos that are in the works, we, we have a lot of great stuff that uh, is uh, being worked on behind the scenes, you just can't see, but of course all of that takes cash. And so please consider a generous contribution to the Institute. And of course, last but not least, we do have our summer school coming up July 21st to July 26, 2019. Uh, I think there are very few slots, less than a handful. So if you want to get in on that right now, you need to do it. You need to contact Dr. Livingston. Uh, so uh, go to the website, middle of the page, you'll see a, a section that says you're invited. Click on that link. It gives you all the information, including the schedule is up now for the summer school uh, with all the lectures, all the information there for that. So very few slots. We probably have a couple of scholarships left. If you want to get in on that, make sure you're contacting Dr. Livingston. All right. All that said, let's talk about this material for the week. And the subject of this week is history. And when I say history, of course, everything we do often has a historical focus. Uh, we are interested, again, in the Southern tradition, exploring what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition, Every tradition, as I've said on this podcast before, has thorns. Every rose has its thorn. Uh, but we don't, we don't chop down the entire rose bush because there are some thorns there. We want to admire the roses and the beauty of the roses. So every tradition is that way as well. And it's important to remember that. It's important to remember that the Southern tradition has beautiful flowers. It is a garden that needs cultivation, as others have suggested. So I think that um, one of the things that we like to do 
is show you the flowers of, of, southern, of the Southern tradition. And I think we've done that this week very well, with also a critique added in as to what the modern profession wants to do with those flowers, and that essentially is chop them down and, and mow down the roses and turn them under. So we begin with a piece on Monday by, uh, it's an old piece. Um, we actually had two pieces published this week from the early 20th century. And this particular piece is by D.A. Anderson. It was actually published in, um, in 1913 in the Swanee Review. And it's about William Branch Giles. See, the problem a lot of times with the historical profession, I remember when I was in graduate school and uh, Clyde Wilson and I talked about this, People write about the same people all the time. I wrote my dissertation on someone that nobody had ever written anything about before. And I, that's something that we need to really consider. The problem with that is it's hard to get those published where anybody's going to read them. Everyone wants to read about Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton or George Washington or Robert E. Lee or Abraham Lincoln. These are the people that, this is why there's volumes of books written about these people. Uh, but people like William Branch Giles who was arguably just as important as some of those other individuals during his lifetime, are forgotten. William Branch Giles was one of the most important members of a great group of Virginia statesmen. In fact, there's the William Branch Giles papers. If you go on out online, these are free of charge. You just go out, I think Google Books has them. Uh, maybe the Internet Archive has them. Uh, but they're a collection of all kinds of great materials. So, and, and they contain materials having to do with the late 18th and early 19th centuries when Giles was around and his political heyday, letters, other things that he had collected. Uh, of course, he was governor of Virginia at one point, um, uh, a representative uh, in the United States Congress. So William Branch Giles was an important actor in early Virginia politics, when Virginia actually had statesmen who led the United States. The problem, of course, is that our history is written not by Virginians or Southerners. That, that, it, that history that is written by Virginians, Virginians and Southerners is often considered to be tarnished because it's biased. Yet, the history that's not written by Virginians or Southerners is never considered to be biased, even though it is. I often talk about, when people ask me, an important book. There's a book by a man named Novick entitled That Noble Dream. And it's the idea that somehow history is objective. He says it's the noble dream. There's no objective history. And he actually gives both barrels to the historical profession, saying you're, you're full of it. There's no objective history. You can't have it. It's a dream. And he's very critical, at least in exposing who the so-called objective historians are as not being very objective at all. In this particular piece, uh, there's a great quote. Uh, he talks about um, the Henry Cabot Lodge book, Alexander Hamilton. In that particular book, Giles, he says, is spoken of as a rough, brazen, loud-voiced Virginian, fit for any bad work, no matter how desperate. But then Alexander says, or Anderson says, excuse me, but Mr. Henry Cabot Lodge is a worshiper of Hamilton, whom Giles hated, and an exponent of broad construction, 
which Giles bitterly fought. And then he brings up Adams's life of John Randolph. Giles is spoken as a man whom no man ever trusted with re- without regret. And in Morris's life of John Quincy Adams, it is asserted that Giles' memory is now preserved solely by the connection he established with the great and honorable statesmen of the Republic by a course of ceaseless attacks upon them. The standard work on the period of Giles' prominence, Mr. Henry Adams' History of the United States during the administrations of Jefferson and Madison, hardly mentions the name of Giles without harsh epithets. In reading these accounts, one cannot but remember that Giles was a bitter enemy of John Quincy Adams, Mr. Henry Adams' grandfather, and that Mr. Morris is the admiring biographer. Um, We have to remember that. These people are biased against Giles because he didn't like their relatives. But you see, these books have become standard in what people think about Virginians and what they think about Southerners. And Giles was a statesman, as the title of the piece suggests, a Jeffersonian leader. He attacked loose construction. He attacked a central bank. He attacked the entire Federalist Hamiltonian program, which is not going to endear him to the nationalist historians. And so they're going to call him all kinds of names, and they're going to consider him to be a lower-than-low political individual. That is generally the way history has been told in this founding period and then into the 19th century. You see, this is where we're critical of things like the righteous cause myth. Uh, Which myth, I mean, are we talking about? There is a myth of American history, and using that word myth is not necessarily a derogatory term. Every people have their myths. Every people have their stories. But the problem is that the, the lost cause myth is used as a derogatory term. That somehow it's not even true when, in fact, this idea of a lost cause, which Southerners said themselves right after the war they had a lost cause, it is true. Um, so the, the myths of history, we have different stories. Well, there is a nationalist myth. There is... And that myth is not true. There is a righteous cause myth, and that myth is not true as well. The nationalist myth is that somehow this was fabricated by Hamilton, but more importantly by people like John Marshall. And um, if you haven't read my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, uh, I'd I'd implore you to go out and get it. Uh, But I talk about this there. It's, It's an attack on nationalism more than anything else. It's an attack on the nationalist myth of America through either Hamilton or the Supreme Court, which helped codify that. But Marshall was very clear about creating this myth in McCulloch v. Maryland when he said there's essentially one people and uh, one people ratified the Constitution. We've had one people. We've had an American nation, which that was expressly rejected in the Philadelphia Convention. It was expressly rejected through the ratification of the Constitution and through the debates that led to the ratification of the Constitution. That one people, one nation myth has been rejected, and Giles was holding the feet to the fire of the people that were trying to force a nationalist government on people that didn't want it, which is why he's problematic for the nationalists, and it's why they want to tear down people like we if you can, If you can cast them out to be uh, some evil character, well, then nobody's going to listen to William Branch Giles. But William Branch Giles, as Anderson says, look, he's not one of the greatest of Virginia statesmen, 
but he was important. And so it's important to remember these people. But you're not going to get that if you read Henry Cabot Lodge or Adams. You're, you're going to get a very negative view of William Branch Giles. You're going to get a very negative view of anybody that opposed Alexander Hamilton. This is why Hamilton is so problematic. It's not just what Hamilton did in providing the blueprint for the nationalist nightmare, the nationalist nightmare that became the central authority of today in Washington, D.C. It's not just that. It's the way that Hamilton is portrayed. Look at the play, Alexander Hamilton, or Hamilton, I should say, the musical, the Broadway musical, of Hamilton being something that he's not. Now, there's parts of that particular musical that are funny. There's parts of it that are accurate. But then it's the myth of Alexander Hamilton. And Giles was against that particular narrative of American history. And so because of that, Giles is forgotten. This is why people need to focus on these individuals, particularly in the 18th and early 19th century, these Virginians, the old Republicans, Virginians, North Carolinians, Marylanders, even some of the Northerners, New Yorkers, Pennsylvanians, they were there too who were saying, wait a second here, we've got a constitution that's being that's operating that we didn't ratify, uh, or John Dickinson of Delaware, who was a proponent of the document, but when the nationalists got in power and they started abusing, he said, no, no, wait a second here, this is not the constitution that we ratified. John Dickinson, the penman of the revolution, who uh, was one of the most important individuals in the founding generation, who became a Jeffersonian, quote-unquote, because he was opposed to how the nationalists in power were abusing power. So these are important individuals to write about. They're important individuals to read about. And this is why we published a piece on William Branch Giles. It's over 100 years old. Uh, 110 years old, to be exact. Uh, so, or almost 110 years old. So this is, this is a lot of fun to find these old pieces when historians actually went out and they, they investigated uh, individuals and wrote about people besides just the founding fathers, the six founding fathers that are often in, uh, in, on every book, Madison, Hamilton, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Franklin. Um, those are the six that everybody writes about. There's so many more that we should be writing about. And then you have the kind of the periphery, people like Patrick Henry and others. But uh, this is when I wrote my, my Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers, why I spent over half the book on biographies, because it was important to bring out some of these forgotten founders. Now, I didn't, William Branch Yells, I still focus on some that were fairly prominent, but uh, that people don't often talk about as much. Uh, and in this line of history being distorted by nationalists, the piece on Tuesday, American Diplomacy under Tyler and Polk, is an interesting piece. Now, I'm not a fan of James K. Polk. This is a this is from a this is a review of a book that was written in 1907 of that title, American Diplomacy under Tyler and Polk, Polk by Jesse Reeves. And this particular review was written by Saint George Suissant, who was uh, a pretty prominent historian. He was a professor of history at Vanderbilt, the University of the South, Brown University, University of Pennsylvania. And he was also the chief of the manuscript division of the Library of Congress. This guy was no fly-by-night fringe historian. He was in the club, right? And he writes this particular review of this book. And uh, we highlighted a quote 
because I think it's indicative of the problem. He points out, he says, Hence, Dr. Reeves stands in the attitude of sharp criticism of the older view established in von Holst's history, that, there, that these two events were but links in the chain of a southern conspiracy for territorial expansion in the interest of slavery. You see, Holst, um, in his history of the United States, uh, which is very nationalist. It was written uh, based on books that were published right after these events took place, and they were published with an express claim. He says, quote, The author gives succinctly the reasons for the misconception of Polk and his administration. These were, quote, the rapid succession of political events ending in the Civil War, by which public attention was drawn away from the causes of the, to the consequences of the Mexican War. Books appearing soon after the event animated not by a spirit of unbiased historical investigation, but written with the professed purpose of presenting a brief against the aggressions of slavery, have furnished in large measures the materials for the history of the period. The treatment of the subject of the Mexican War and the reviews of Jay and Livermore, well-constructed and widely distributed as they were and fortified by an examination of published documents and newspapers, has grown into the narrative of von Holst. So essentially what he's saying is right after the war, you have these 19th century historians going back and looking at everything in reverse and using the abolitionist literature primarily to say, well, here's the cause of the war. It is the slave power conspiracy, which produced the von Holst narratives, and Reeves is saying, you can't, it's not true. It's not true. There's no slave power conspiracy. Now, as we saw, it was important because he was a diplomatic historian, first and foremost, and he collected a tremendous amount of material on this. And he says that what Reeves is saying is 100% accurate. Um... And so we have this narrative built on America, which is a slave power conspiracy to ruin the United States. And he's just saying, that's von Holtz. He's saying this is simply not true. And of course, you've had a whole host of historians who produce work based on that. And now that slave power conspiracy is back in the fore with people like Matthew Karp at Princeton, who's written a book on Calhoun and saying the slave power conspiracy is the real story of the middle American uh, antebellum period. It's just, but this is just regurgitating something. Now it's a way to get tenure because everyone, oh yeah, it's the Southern slaveholders. They were driving everything. This is all about slavery. It's all about slavery, slavery, and nothing but slavery. Calhoun as the defender of slavery. Now this is what we have. Uh, and it's produced by, as... Suissant points out this narrative that's based on a particular understanding of history. It's why history is biased, you see. This is what Anderson's talking about. This is what Suissant's talking about. This is why you don't have as much material on R.L. Dabney, which is the subject of our piece for Wednesday. There's a new book, a collected, a collected uh, series of essays by Zachary Garris, um, you can go out and find this. It's on Amazon. The title of the book um, is Dabney on Fire. 
and we'll have a review of it. But uh, Garris, who is a lawyer, um, has collected several of the essays of R.L. Dabney, uh, some of the best, and put them in this little this little volume so people can read it. And the reason he focuses on Dabney is because Dabney, as he says, is was was Dabney a prophet? Did he have something valuable to say about modern society? And Garris says, quote, Dabney wrote several essays on education, with the greatest being Secularized Education for Libby's Princeton Review in 1879. Dabney opposed the public school movement taking place in Virginia for several reasons. First and foremost, he argued that education belongs to parents and the private sector, not the state. He further argued that the true education has the Bible as its foundation and moral formation as its end. And he knew public schools would inevitably become secularized. The logic was that the public schools would be educating children from a variety of religious persuasions, and only the last, and only the least common denominator would be allowed, namely atheism. The Supreme Court prohibited Bible readings and prayer from public schools in the 1960s, yet Dabney predicted this almost a century prior. This is a quote from Dabney, but nearly all public men and divines declared that the state schools are the glory of America, that they're a finality and in no event to be surrendered. And we have seen that their complete secularization is logically inevitable. Christians must prepare themselves then for the following result. All prayers, catechisms, and Bibles will ultimately be driven out of the schools. End quote. Dabney not only predicted the secularization of public schools, but he added that this would corrupt the youth and harm the Christian church. Dabney later followed up with his proclaimed prophecy that religious freedom in America would also decline. This was originally written in the chapter titled Civic Ethics of his 1897 book, The Practical Philosophy. You may, this is a Dabney quote. You may deem it a strange prophecy, but I predict that the time will come in this once free America when the battle for religious liberty will have to be fought over again and will probably be lost because the people are already ignorant of its true basis and condition. So education was something that Dabney worried about, the secularization of education and the destruction of education in America. Now he's, he's focusing primarily on religious education and what that does. And of course, without moral education, you can't have liberty. I mean, lots of people talked about this in the founding generation. This Even John Adams said, look, if we don't have a moral people, we can't have liberty. It's impossible. Dabney also predicted the destruction of marriage. And he said, uh, and so Garris, I mean, this is stuff that's too hot to touch oftentimes. He is very critical of the women's rights movement as well, feminism. And so Garris says, Dabney made several predictions regarding the direction of the women's rights movement of the 19th century. He argued that the movement had anti-Christian roots and adopted the egalitarian views of the Jacobins of the French Revolution. In his 1888 essay for the Presbyterian Quarterly Review, Anti-Biblical Theories of Rights, Dabney predicted this egalitarian spirit would push women into all areas of life, including the military. Quote, If the Jacobin theory be true, then women must be allowed access to every male avocation, including government, and war if she wishes it, to suffrage, to every political office, to his absolute freedom from her husband and the marriage relation as she enjoyed before her union to him, and who has absolute control of her own property and earnings as that claimed by the single gentleman as against her own husband. 
Now, this is something we're talking about today. Should women be drafted? Should women serve on the front lines? These are all things that Dabney predicted would happen. His concern was that women would take would trade the glorious role of motherhood for careers in other male-dominated fields. As he said in his 1867 book, Defense of Virginia, when America has had a generation of women who were politicians instead of mothers, how fundamental must be the destruction of society and how distant and difficult must be the remedy. The entire 1871 essay, Women's Rights Women, was dedicated to opposing the first wave of feminism. Dabney thought this movement would, com- would completely undermine marriage and the relationship between the sexes. Women's rights, he said, mean the abolition of all permanent marriage ties. And he was critical of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. He said she holds that women's bondage is not truly dissolved until the ma- that marriage is bond is annulled. She is thoroughly consistent. She, some hoodwinked advocates of a revolution may be blind to the sequence, but it is inevitable. Dabney further added that the women's rights movement would introduce strife between men and women to the point that relationships would be reduced to cohabitation and concubinage. He said the abolition of marriage would follow again by another cause. The divergent interests and the rival independence of the two equal wills would be irreconcilable with domestic government or union or peace. Shall the children of this monstrous non-union be held responsible to the to two variant coordinate and supreme wills at once, heaven pity the children. He said the only relation between the sexes will, which will remain will be cohabitation, continuing so long as the convenience or caprice of both parties may suggest, and this with most will amount to a vagrant concubinage. So, <laughs> Dabney was predicting some of the situations in modern America in the late 19th century. He said this is stuff, and this is part of the Southern tradition. Now, people may say, well, this is the stuff that he's talking about is good. Right? The stuff we have now, it's good. But Dabney was saying this is, this is bad for society overall. And Dabney, of course, was a firm proponent of the Southern tradition. Garris says, in some ways, we are too late. Many of Dabney's prophecies have already come to pass. However, instead of ignoring the man... We should consider the arguments of this intellectual giant. Time has vindicated Robert Louis Dabney. He said of himself, Dabney did say of himself in July 1894, I am the Cassandra of Yankeedom, predestined to prophecy truth and never to be believed by her country until too late. This is true. Now, on this line of history, we ran a piece on Friday, Make America States Again by Joe Wolverton. This was his graduation address to his students, his last speech he was going to make to them. He's taken a different uh, career path, and so he was responding. But he said, look, the problem with education is that we've forgotten the founders, for example. We're not taught the founders. We're not taught them because they create problems. And this is something that I wrote uh, a couple of years ago about why people want to get rid of Confederate symbols or songs or images because they are defiant and so the founders are defiant. If you, if you teach the founders, you're going to teach people, if you teach them the right way, you're going to create patriots. And you don't want that. You don't want patriots. You want automatons. You want people that are going to just be nationalists. Well, this is what the government says. This is what we're going to do. We have a nation. We have this. These people are traitors. These people are in the South. They're traitors. 
If you read the founding generation, you're not going to come to that conclusion. It's the spirit of 76. If you read the, the founding generation, you're not going to come to the conclusion that the Southern Confederacy was illegitimate. You're not going to come to that conclusion at all. You're going to come to the conclusion that a lot of the descendants, direct descendants of the founding generation, fought for the South <laughs> because they understood what it was. And he points out that you have to pledge yourselves to be the stewards of liberty and of these founding principles. And he implored his students in his final address to do that. And so this is about history again. Why do we take things out of history and replace them with things that aren't as good? Because it creates a narrative and it creates a biased view of the past. As I've said, a lot of people would be willing to say history in America doesn't begin until about 1975. I talk about that in my course at McClanahan Academy on Reconstruction and Recreation. Where it's free to enroll, by the way, mclanahanacademy.com. You can get a free course by that just by enrolling. So you're going to, you see this. And then, of course, we have the piece on uh, Thursday, Washington's Money by Paul Yarbrough. He points out that what we've got is, an, is a complete distortion of the American tradition, which was the Southern tradition. People that talk, I mean, it's democracy, which is not, the founding generation was completely against it. Um, the national, he says, is equally monstrous, and its monstrous concept began with the French Revolution and pervaded Europe before its cancer spread to these United States in 1865 and created the United States. He says, even the pundits who cry out loud today to retain the Electoral College do not understand the beginnings of the Republic. And that beginning had nothing to do with 1776, but in fact, 1787. He talks about how the Federal Reserve was created by that. And how all of that led to the massive bureaucratic state that we have in Washington, D.C. now. So this is the issue that we face moving forward and where the Southern tradition is true and valuable. Now, in that Southern tradition, again, you have things that are not. Things that, and even you could say, well, is John Marshall a Southerner? Well, certainly, but John Marshall was a nationalist first and foremost. John Marshall ditched his homespun Virginia rearing for the glit and glamour, supposedly, of the, na of the nation. And Marshall was concerned. I think Marshall's nationalism is interesting. I've talked about John Marshall. He was concerned about the French Revolution taking root in America, and I think that's where his nationalism came from more than anything else. Marshall was a conservative who did not want to see guillotines being pushed around the Virginia countryside and lopping off heads like his. So his nationalism came from a fear of the French Revolution taking hold. And I think some, and for some nationalists in America, that was the case. You had this vast wilderness. You didn't know how to govern it. Um, and you had certainly the spirit of the French Revolution taking hold, and he didn't want to see that here. So I think you can give Marshall... Uh, in some ways, you can, you can understand Marshall... We can, we can criticize Marshall because at the end of the day, what he did through his several rulings and others like him, and then of course Joseph Story and, and that time period, is create this monster in Washington, D.C. But regardless, 
people like Giles and others, we need to focus on these Southerners who are so important for the fabric of American history but are long forgotten. So in that way, this is why history in the Southern tradition is so important. The real, the Jeffersonian Southern tradition, which was America for the first 80 years of its existence, and I, and I still say the South is America, what people like most about America often has Southern roots. Until next time, good day.